My name is Taylor. There you go. And I am the pastor here at Sojourn Galleria, and uh, just so honored to be so, and always love coming together with, with my family here once a week to gather and just worship God together. And so as Nathaniel said, we are in Jonah, and we're just going to jump right in. Jonah 3, uh, 1 through 5, looking at sort of, it's almost like Jonah part due. It's uh, this, this text is, well, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, so. It's really a mirror of chapter one. We'll get into that in a second. Let me start off with something else. I mentioned, I believe in this series even, um, Hannah Arendt, who uh, was a Jew in America, and she covered as a New York Times reporter the trial of the notorious Adolf Eichmann, who was one of the chief minds and engineers behind the Nazi extermination camps um, in the 19, early 1940s. Um, and she wrote about, she, she wrote up this report um, in a book that's called Eichmann in Jerusalem. And she said something, she said a bunch of things that were interesting, insightful, and pretty scandalous, actually. She talked about the banality of evil, among other things, and just how normal people can do really terrible things. Um, and also, in a sense, really served to humanize rather than demonize the Nazis and even Eichmann, this, this terrible sinner um, against her own race. But because she really said, look, one of the most terrifying things about all this is that the Nazis were people, a lot of them just like us. Um, it was an outrageous thing, and it's still very, very scandalous in a, in a lot of circles, especially Jewish circles, um, but also terrifying because the thought that that resident evil could be in me, that I could be capable of something like that. Um, well, you know, I wanted to bring that up because um, these people that we're looking at, and again, I think this is something I've said to in this series, these, these people, the Assyrians, their capital was Nineveh, where Jonah is told to go by God and to preach a word that God has for them to them. Um, they were every bit as bad as the Nazis. Uh, they excelled in racial genocide through interbreeding and mass murder, wholesale slaughter when they come into a country and just wipe it out. Um, they did all of these things and more to the 10 northern tribes of Israel in about 60 years. Fast forward 60 years from Jonah's going to Nineveh. Um, they came Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, the biggest empire in the ancient Near East at that time. They sort of invented empire. They came uh, to the northern tribes of Israel and and just wiped them out. And the 10 tribes never recovered. Judah, the southern tribe, was, was the only remnant that was left. And they were taken away, of course, a couple centuries later by Babylon. But that's a different story. Um, so Jonah, knowing all of this and, and hating, even though Assyria hadn't come yet to his people, they were, they were a threat uh, to every, every nation that surrounded them. They were, they were known as a terrifying people who would do terrifying and horrible things to their enemies. Um, Jonah did something more bold and more provocative and more hateful to the Jewish mind than even Hannah Arendt um, uh, in, in humanizing the Nazis. She, uh, he, uh, he not only said the enemies of Israel were human, after all, he entered their ranks and held out an offer of reconciliation and peace to them. That's what God had called Jonah to. And 
we see in chapter 4 how really odious that call was to Jonah. But God had called him not only just to say, hey, these people are humans, but to go to them and to preach a, a message of repentance to them, which is to hold out an offer of hope and salvation. The best equivalent of what he does here in, in these verses Nathaniel read is could be likened to a Jew leaving America or Britain in 1939 or thereabouts and entering Berlin and standing in the shadow of the Brandenburg Gate and proclaiming the downfall of the Nazi regime lest they repent of their ways. Um, so this is an amazing piece of history that we have here. An absolutely astonishing, a bit maddening, harrowing, um, and outrageous piece of history um, that we've got here that Jonah finally obeyed, finally obeyed, because as I said at the beginning of the sermon, the book starts out, and you'll know this if you've read it before, and you'll know this if if you've been here the past few weeks, but the book starts out almost the exact same way as chapter 3, which Nathaniel just started. It's made, chapter 3 is made to mirror chapter 1, but... You know, God comes to Jonah and, and he says, go to Nineveh. And, and it says, Jonah got up and you think he's going to obey. And then he, he cuts west. Nineveh is east of Israel. He goes the exact opposite direction to the coast and flees God's call and tries to flee from God. And that he's not too successful at that. So since then, we've gotten to the place where God has brought Jonah back. He's had him thrown into the sea, swallowed by a giant fish, spit back, brought back east to the land, to the eastern side of the Mediterranean, to the coast where he's from, and then spit onto that land, and then he's recommissioned here in chapter 3. So God's giving Jonah a second chance, and he's determined to have his man go preach peace to this evil people. So we really see the heart of God here. And one of the things we see the the heart of God for more in this passage than almost anywhere else in the Bible is we see God's love for the city. We see God's love for the city. Um, As I said, in chapter 1, it starts off by saying, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. In chapter 3, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Sounds very familiar. The message that I tell you. There's a difference, though. Uh, There's a lot of compare and contrast in these mirrors that we're given in this book. And one of the differences is that it says this, if we read on. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. That's a difference. Instead of going west to Tarshish, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh, here it is, was an exceedingly great city. We have that in in verse 2 of chapter 1. We already know that. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. I've just noticed now... I do my work in the, uh, in the original text. I've just noticed now, if you have an ESV, there's actually a footnote there. And what the Hebrew says is this. So in other words, the ESV doesn't include this, but it, the actual Hebrew original text says, and Nineveh was a great city to God. And that's a difference. And so what the narrator of this book is starting to unveil to us in a new way, and we'll see more of this in chapter 4, really start to see God's heart for the city in chapter 4 as compared to Jonah's heart, the reluctant prophet who didn't want to give this message, who did, but kind of digging his heels in, gave a sort of perfunctory message, as we'll talk about at the end of the sermon. 
But this is an important city to God. Um, and, the, and the word really doesn't mean, it can't really mean great, like big. It's a big city to God, although there might be some of those tones in it. It really has to mean it's an important city to him. Um, so I want to talk about, for the next 20 minutes or so, I want to just hunker down on this point that we are delivered here in this passage in Jonah. The all-important point that God loves the city. The city is important. The city of Nineveh and the city in general. People where The place where people more than any other place on earth gather. People that God has made for himself. A place of resident evil more than the countryside because people are there and people were born opposed to God, full of all sorts of corruption, the scriptures tell us. But God loves us and so he loves the city. Um, one thing that a church planter friend of Tim Keller, he's a pastor up in New York City, told him a long time ago. It's this great quote. He said, <clears throat> you know, God, I'm convinced that God loves the city more than he loves the country. And a lot of us love the country. It's beautiful. It can be beautiful. And it's good to get out of the city if you have that luxury sometimes. Just to, I love to head west on I-10. Just, just go. I don't care where I'm going. I'm just going. And eventually I'll see some hills and preferably I'll set out in the afternoon and see some setting sun and I just love it. So it's good to get out of the city, but God really loves the city and calls us to it, and he loves the city more than the country. And he says, it's a, it's like a sort of a syllogism that's pretty unavoidable in its logic, but he loves the city more than the country because there are more, because he loves people, and he made people in his image with a crown of his creation. And there are more people in the city than there are in the country where there are more plants. And God loves people more than plants. So God, as much as he loves plants, okay, sorry. Sorry, a few tree huggers out there. I love trees too. I'm a Tolkien fan. Tolkien used to talk to them on walks and rub their bark and treat them like they were people, which Lewis and his brother, as they were taking walks, they would just leave them behind. Ah. So I love trees. Don't get me wrong. But, and God does too. He made them. But he loves people more. And he died for people. And so he loves the city more than he loves the country. Um, it reminds me, this idea reminds me of an essay that became a sermon preached in the heart of World War II in Britain by C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory. It's affected me more than any other ten pages other than the scriptures themselves. He talks at the end of the book in this memorable passage about how there are no mere mortals, he says. He says, rather, um, the people with whom we rub shoulders during the day, people that we snub and exploit, and play with and work with are either going to be immortal terrors in hell or eternal splendors in heaven forever. Um, we are helping in the way that we treat each other and love or choose not to love one another, each other and people around us toward one of those two destinations, those eternal destinations. We were made to last forever and all of us will. The question is, where will we be and what will our life be like? Will it be with God, in fellowship with Him, with soul-satisfying enjoyment of life as we were created to, to be, or will it be away from Him with His wrath, His just wrath against us for our sins upon us forever? Jeremiah, the prophet, the weeping prophet. So if Jonah's the reluctant prophet, Jeremiah's the weeping prophet. In chapter 29, um, he, he tells his people who have been taken. So 60 years after Jonah, the 10 northern tribes were, were taken away and really just sort of assimilated and um, 
mongrelized in a sense uh, by the Assyrian Empire, this empire that Jonah goes to. But Judah, uh, much later, about 150 years later, was invaded by Babylon. Um, ne- king Nebuchadnezzar, as the king of Babylon, invaded the southern tribe of Judah. Baby's fine, by the way. I'm cool. You can keep her in here if you want. Um, and uh, was taken away to Babylon and lived in exile for 70 years plus. And um, Jeremiah takes this word to that people, and he says this. He says, um, seek the welfare of the city. This is God's word to his people Israel, exiled in Babylon. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. You know, the whole trajectory of the scriptures also, not. I don't just want to take a couple proof texts or take a a tiny footnote, you know, from this verse, although one word of God stands and is enough and ought to be enough for us, but the whole of Scripture um, testifies to this idea that God is moving all creation toward a city and that he loves the city and that his plan is for the city. If you think about the arc of the narrative of all of Scripture, take a step back from Jeremiah, from the prophets, from Jonah. Um, Look at how the Bible starts. It starts in the country. It starts in a garden. And where does it finish? It moves increasingly to cities. And uh, by the time we see the church growing, it's really growing in cities. Paul is taking the gospel to cities because he knows, as I'll touch on in a bit, that if, he, if, the, if the gospel, if the kingdom of God takes root through the preached gospel and the planting of churches in cities, then the countryside will be taken care of. The suburbs will be taken care of. The reverse is not true. Where does the Bible end as we trace this arc of Scripture? Started in the country, it finishes in a city. A city that comes down out of heaven and becomes a city that God himself, Christ the God-man, rules from. And kings come in and out of it. And there is no night anymore. And so we're moving, God is moving us from a garden to a city. He loves the country, but he loves the city more because he loves people more than plants. And um, really, that's... Um, that is the trajectory of history. I mean, we, as I'm going to talk about, perhaps ad nauseum to you in a few minutes, that's where we're headed. We're headed to, um, you know, if if the last two or three centuries were the century of the nation state, they could be characterized as such. Most agree that that study these sorts of things, these demographic trends. This century. 21st century will be known as the century of the city. And it doesn't like that, it doesn't look like that's going to abate. It looks like that's only waxing. It's only growing in its tendency. Um, I want to talk to you more about um, God loving the city and about the city. Um, so in the Old Testament, it's clear from texts like the one I've shared that God cares about and loves the city because um, that's where the people are, that's where his image is. Like I've said uh, in the New Testament, um, especially in the book of Acts, we see that same thing writ large. Paul goes to the cities. Um, Keller says, um, win the city, win the country. That's not, by the way, that's not him, that's me. Win the city, win the country, but the reverse is not true. He says it this way, quote, you can't reach the city from the suburbs, but you can reach the suburbs from the city. So this is not an anti-suburb rant or sermon by any means, but you can reach the suburbs from the city, but not the other way around. Cities are like a giant heart, he says, drawing people in and then sending them out. Students, singles, immigrants all come in 
to the city and then typically move out from it or stay in it. In each case, the movement is from the center outward. I want to talk about just the trend toward cities and the size of cities for a little bit. Um, this is more true today than it was in Paul's day, not less. So if we've made a case already from the Old Testament that God loves a city, and then in the New especially, um, and they're a strategic place for the church to be and to plant and to worship and to live, then that's even more true today, not less. Today, cities are more important than ever before, quoting Keller. In 1950, New York and London were the only world cities with metro area populations of over 10 million people. Okay, The only, the only two in 1950. Today, however, there are more than 20 such cities, 12 of which achieved that ranking in the last two decades, with many more to come. In short, the world is moving to the cities, and in many ways, the world is moving to a city. That's me. If the 18th and 20th centuries were the centuries of the nation state, as I said, the 21st will be the century of the city. Quote, all of these new megacities are developing in, in what was once called the third world, in which I personally, Taylor, prefer to call the two-thirds world, just to remind us that we're, we're not in a majority anymore, um, or the global south. If the urban to rural ratio of these populations stabilizes near 75% city to 25% country, as it did in Europe and North America, we're kind of at our swollen point at that um, so all this city development, a lot of it's taking place in the two-thirds world. If, if, if the two-thirds world follows that same trend, the next three decades will see over half a billion people move into the cities of Africa and Asia alone. I'm not even mentioning South America. In other words, one new Rio de Janeiro, 10 million people, every two months. By most estimates, we have reached the point where over 50% of the world population now lives in cities, compared to around 5% two centuries ago. Two centuries ago, 5% of the people lived in cities. Now, half of the world population. And it's just trending upward from there. By the end of our lifetimes, uh, is, is, is high and very possible as 80% of the world's population will be in cities. So that's size. Let's look at influence. The significance of cities today lies not only in their growing size, but also in their growing influence. And this influence is due to the rise of globalization. The world is flattened out. People communicate instantly with each other from all corners of the globe, as you know and participate in. And the shared media are creating a common global culture. Where does all this happen? You might guess it. Cities. As Edwin Heathcote has written, digital networking is not as was forecast, led to a decline in the city. People kind of thought, oh, I remember meeting a guy in Switzerland. We were looking out over the Jungfrau region, having breakfast, and he said, uh, we're on this, literally on this little town called Grindelwald. And uh, you couldn't get there any, any way other than by a gondola or walking. It was delightful. But he had moved from Chicago, and he kind of ran his, he ran his stock and trade, his, his stock trading business, um, his finances from his laptop in Grindelwald. And... Uh, you know, people kind of thought, well, that's, that's what everyone's going to be doing in 20 years. Well, not, not the case. Rather, it has led to an urbanization of the rest of the planet, globalization has. People, especially young people, want to live in cities. Children in Mexico and Romania are becoming more like young adults in Los Angeles and New York City than adults in their own locales. Second, Keller says this. He says, globalization connects not only people to people, but cities to cities. World cities are more connected to others around the world than they are to their own nations. 
The elites from these cities work for the same corporations, attend the same universities, buy homes, and take vacations in the same places, and share common social and cultural values. They are better able to identify with the urban elites of other nations than with the non-urban citizens of their own countries. It's a global village. The strong connections among major cities exist not only um, among elites, however. Huge, diverse immigrant populations in global cities tie each urban area tightly to scores of other countries. As Nathaniel was talking about as he plugged HBU, the HBU Inter um, International Student Adopt-A-Student Program that we're going to be embracing. Um, each global city is a portal to others and to the world. Indeed, each city is a city each city, um, excuse me, each city is a microcosm or mini-world. Houston is not an exception to that. It's, it's like the point par excellence of that. We are the most internationally rich and diverse city in, the, in America, and America is far and away the most internationally rich and varied country, not just in the world, but in the history of the world. We are a nation of immigrants. So, and we are in one of the most international the richest international spots in the most international city in history. I don't think that's an accident. In fact, I know it's not. It's a huge opportunity. Therefore, to reach the city with Christ, to reach Houston with Christ, is to reach the world. It's sort of the crystallization of that point. Um, put another way, change a city, change cities, change the world. Al Mohler, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote the following after reading the 2010 special report by Financial Times entitled The Future of Cities. He said this. He said, this much is clear. The cities are where the people are. Okay, we got that. In a course of less than 300 years, our world has shifted from one in which 3% of the people live in cities to one in which 80% are resident in urban areas. If the Christian church does not learn new modes of urban ministry, we will find ourselves on the outside looking in. The gospel of Jesus Christ must call a new generation of committed Christians into these teeming cities. And the, as these new numbers make clear, there really is no choice. Okay, so let's, download, let's, let's take a step now down into the challenge, more of the challenge. That's um, sort of the size and the influence, but the challenge um, of cities it's critical that we have, I'm quoting again, no doubt from Keller, that we have Christians and churches wherever there are people. But the people of the world are now moving into the great cities of the world many times faster than the churches. There are now 5 million new people moving into the cities of the developing world every month. Even if there were only one church for every 5,000 people, this means that we should be planting 1,000 urban churches in the world every month. Um, in Houston, at least before the, the oil drop last year, we had about 10,000 people a month moving to the city. That's a mega church per week, or in sojourn metrics, that's about 30 sojourn-sized churches um, per month that need to be planted. That's, that's just to keep up with the influx. Now, now, the influx is a bit less now, no doubt, but it's still huge. That's not even talking about all the unreached people that are outside our walls right now. Um, that's not even talking about the fact that we need nurturing and we need discipleship and we need fellowship and we need to worship one God as one people. 
Um, the problem isn't just one of scale, but of method and concept. How do we reach the many cultures and languages here in Houston, in the Galleria alone? We plant, we plant churches that plant churches. We don't just add, we multiply. We plant in non-white areas strategically with non-white church planters, many of whom will need to speak non-white, if I can say that, languages. Um, missionary theologian Roger Green, Greenway asserts, quote, pressed together in metropolises, I've never said that word before, metropolises, Pressed together in metropolises, the races, tribes, and diverse people groups are geographically more accessible than ever before. An obvious point, but a salient one. In Acts 17, Paul the Apostle speaks in the marketplace in Athens, Greece, and assures them that, quote, God determined the times set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this, Paul proclaims, that we might reach out, as it were, and find God. What better place to do that? Than the city. But for people to be able to do that, we as Christians have to understand these trends and harness them for the kingdom and plan and preach the gospel as Jonah did. God loves the city and we should too. And he's bringing the world really to the place of the city. And he's put us here for such a time in this place as this. Um, Greenway concludes with this thought. He says, quote, God in our time is moving climactically through a variety of social, political, and economic factors to bring Earth's peoples into closer contact with one another, into greater interaction and interdependence, and into earshot of the gospel. Man, if you're in the country, ain't nobody within earshot of the gospel, except a tree. You can preach to a tree. I've seen people do it. But, uh, in fact, I've probably done it once or twice, but um, it's preferable to preach to people. And there are lots of people in the city. By this movement, God carries forward his redemptive purposes in history. A sign of our time is the city. Through worldwide migration to the city, God may be setting the stage, get this, for Christian missions, greatest and perhaps final hour. And I just can't emphasize enough to you, people of God, that as my friend and uh, fellow pastor in the city, Bruce Wesley I've heard him say more than once, and he, I think he likes to remind his people, um, we want to drive a knife deep into the heart of the idea of missions with an S. Because we don't want to think of missions as a trip. We want to think as Jonah, and the God of Jonah, and the God who is Jesus Christ, the God who went on mission himself and took on flesh to come into our mess and save us. We want to think like he does and remember that it's not missions, it's mission. We are on mission. The mission is here. The mission is the city. The mission is Galleria. The mission is in your house, at your work, across the street, next door to you, across Westheimer. Man, it is all right here. And that can be terrifying because there's a sense in which, and I'm not saying we're not going to take trips. We're going to take trips, God willing. We're going to have international partnerships. But I don't want, I think it's easy for us to say, I've taken my missions trip, check. The rest of the 50 weeks of the year are mine. Nope. We're on, we're a people on mission, joining the Father, Son, and Spirit in the historic work of redemption. 
And there's no taking a break from that, thank God. That's what he saved us for. And he's put us in a place where everyone is within earshot of the gospel. Preached, articulated, lived. What does engaging the city look like? Keller sees four crucial groupings of people in the cities that, we, that followers of Christ, like us, um, must, must reach. So these are the four. The younger generation... So a disproportionate amount of young people are attracted to cities um, compared to older folks that aren't necessarily as much attracted to the city, more suburbs, more country, Um, especially students. Young people will shape this world in the future, just period. It's a fact. Um, So they are a huge, they're, they're in mass in the city, especially in universities and colleges being educated, and they're going to change the world. They're going to shape it. So why not get a hold of them? Um, then the next group he gives after the younger generation is cultural elites. So these are, we're going to encounter the cultural elites where we live and work and play as a church. That's where we're going to, we're going to be rubbing shoulders with these people. And they are important because the people that God died for, but also because strategically they are, they are culture shapers. Um, and so having the gospel on our lips and in our hearts and on our, in our hands and feet and not being ashamed of it, but going to them strategically and knowing that God has put us in their place to rub shoulders with them because they're either going to be immortal terrors in hell or eternal splendors in heaven. Um, And then the third group is accessible, quote, unreached people groups. I think in quotes because they're unreached until they make themselves reachable by coming here and living here. You know, when we were in Edinburgh... This is just three people, but I mean, I had an Iranian friend. That's a very closed country that hates America um, that I would not do very well in uh, if I went there. Um, he turns out he was he's in the Ayatollah Khomeini's. He's a nephew of the Ayatollah Khomeini. We're studying a PhD together. He's asked he asked me to read to read through the Bible with him in a year. Yeah. Talk about an opportunity. Uh, I had a Saudi friend that taught imams, which are like Muslim pastors. His job was to teach imams in Medina, Saudi Arabia. We met outside the mosque in Edinburgh. We Skype now. We talk about the Bible, talk about Jesus, look at the scriptures, study the Quran together. Um, And a Pakistani friend who said, like, uh, in this awkward conversation, as we were walking down toward the mosque kitchen together one one day for a curry, um, yeah, oh, how are, how are you doing? How is your family doing at home? Not so well. Drones. And I stupidly pursued the conversation. And who's 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 um, causing the drone strikes on your what? what? <laughs> yeah, America. Dude, you talk about like a party stopper. Um, but there we were in the middle of the streets of Edinburgh. We hugged goodbye. And after we had a curry together, we're, we're still good friends. He checked up on me during the flooding, the Texas flooding. Hey, I heard there was Texas flooding. Are you OK? I mean, are you serious? How kind are you? Um, but all this happens in cities. We meet these people in cities. Um, it's why the HBU partnership. Um, you have culture shapers, unreachables, international students, young people. I mean, it's, it's all there. I mean, right, right there in that partnership. Um, such a lever to shape the world. And then the fourth group is the poor. 
And one of the things that's said is that an urban church's work among the poor will be a significant mark of its validity as a people of God, as a church. Like, are you working with the poor? What kind of work are you doing? If you're not, then you really can't call yourselves Christians. Um, you may be preaching the gospel, but you're not living the gospel. But the gospel is that we, in our utter poverty, could do nothing to save ourselves, and God, in all of his riches, left left it behind and became poor to give us what he left behind by living a life of obedience to the Father that we can't live, but that's required of us, and dying the death that we deserve on the cross in our place. And so, in this city, being involved with not just handouts to the poor, but, you know, you've heard it, hand-ups, um, not in the way that we engage and serve and love and give to the poor, um, sort of perpetuating the cycle, but but doing so intelligently and thoughtfully. So that's something that we want to be involved in. Um, Gary Haugen, the, the head of the International Justice Mission, which does justice all over the world, came and spoke to a group um, that I was a part of right out of university. And um, he taught just briefly on and powerfully on the feeding of the 5,000. And he had this really awkward moment where he was kind of playing like he was a disciple. And he's like, and Jesus broke the bread and, 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 and gave thanks uh, for the fish. And then he just started multiplying it and like baskets full and then mounds full. And it just started piling up everywhere. And the disciples are like, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And it was just piling everywhere, fish and loaves all over the place. And they were like, thank you. Thank, and he just said, thank you, like for like a minute. And we were all just like, what is this guy? Did he smoke something earlier this morning? And then he's like, yeah, it's silly, isn't it? Like, why would... Why did you multiply all this stuff, Jesus? Is it all for us? No. No. Why, God, have you placed us at the very top of the pyramid? Or why have we been given more materially and spiritually than any other generation in history? Why, why have you given us this wealth in all these amazing ways? Is it all for us? Of course not. That would be as absurd as the disciples not handing out the food to these starving people. We have been given all this to give it away, to bless, and look where God has placed us. Um, some other ways of loving the city, um, as we look to wrap up, living in a smaller house, um, or perhaps in an apartment that's the same size that costs a lot more than it would if we weren't in the city, sacrificing in that way. Um, perhaps putting our kids in environments that are less elite, public schools, um, I'm say perhaps, and Robin and I don't have our kids in public schools yet, but it's part of the conversation. Working with excellence in every arena God's put us in. Engaging the arts at the highest level is one of our values at Sojourn. Engaging the academy, think of Chris. Um, engaging in, in the political arena with intelligence and compassion and courage and humility. All these things are imitations of our God. They are in, incarnational endeavors. Um, taking on the skin of those around us to see them saved, um, to see the things that we enter into as Jonah entered into Nineveh, um, purified, beautified, saved, esteemed, made new for God's glory rather than for, for the glory of man. Um, and finally, you know, we can enter the city and hold out hope to it because he left the ultimate city, as I sort of said earlier and entered our darkness, and entered our city, as it were. You know, 
take a step back and you look at this passage again that Nathaniel read that I've been preaching on. Um, there's some interesting things going on here. One of, one of them, it's, he's a very reluctant prophet. He seems obedient and he is obedient to the letter of the law to say God saying go to Nineveh and, and he does go to Nineveh. And this, I mean, as it were, standing beneath, beneath the Brandenburg Gate in the face of his enemies and preaching repentance. I mean, amazingly courageous. Um, but he seems to dig his heels in, as I've said. First of all, a couple of indicators. One, he gives a really crappy sermon. It's five words in the Hebrew. Um, and there's no offer of repentance, if you'll notice. And there's no offer of hope. He just says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. That's his sermon. And through that crappy sermon, and through his reluctance, and through his really hatred of the people, because what does he do after this? You want, um, can I confirm my point? Just read the next chapter. He goes and sits on a hill and watches to make sure that God's going to, hoping God will rain down fire and brimstone on the city. And then God gives him a talking to and sends a worm. And that's another sermon for the next couple weeks. And we'll talk about the repentance of the Assyrians next week. Don't worry, because I know some of that's in this text. But Jonah gives a, just a bad sermon. It's almost like I'll, it's a perfunctory thing. I will say what you want me to, but no more. No more. There's another thing in the, uh, and, God, and yet God works through it. There's another thing in the, in the text that's a little bit uh, more slippery, and that is that it says, curiously, and the commentators are all over the place, they don't know what to do with this, that Nineveh was a three days journey. No, nobody knows what this means. People speculate, of course. I mean, it's there. What do we do with it? What does that mean? It can't mean it was a three days walk around the city, that that's how big it was. Because there's talk, there's talk of the size of the city elsewhere, its greatness, so people kind of default to, oh, maybe it's talking about the exact size. But it wasn't, we know from, from excavations, I think page 1691 on your ESV study Bible, if you have it, shows a map of the city with the river walk and the zoo and all that. But it wasn't a three-day walk in circumference, nor in diameter. So it wasn't talking, it, this is not talking about the size of Nineveh. Well, some maybe get closer when they say, perhaps it's talking about the length of his journey into Nineveh to preach, or through Nineveh, as he's preaching. This man who's been vomited up inside the belly, from inside the belly of this fish, preaching this Israelite, this strange anomaly, preaching, repent, turn or burn. He doesn't even say turn, though. Turn or burn is a better sermon than what he preached. He just basically said burn. But here's the thing. The, the best the best rule of interpretation for any text, and certainly the Bible is not ex accepted from this, is context. Context is king in, in interpretation of a text. Where have we seen the word three before? The only other place in this book, in the passage right before. The passage where Jonah is swallowed by the fish, it begins in 117 in your Bible by saying, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish, Three days and three nights. This was his lowest, as we talked about last week, it was his lowest point of descent. God took him down to the port, down to the belly of the ship, down into the heart of the seas, which meant death, down into the fish that he was swallowed in, down to the bottom of the ocean. It was death. All of the imagery coalesces to tell us 
This was death. What should have been death to Jonah. It felt like death to him. God gave him life through death. What we see here, I believe, is an echo of that. One of the things this is telling us is that this march into Nineveh was death to Jonah. And that, of course, man, I could preach a whole sermon on that. I won't. It was hateful and odious to him. It was also a surrendering of his will. But there was one. Oh, there was one. There was one who came, the very Son of God, like I said, who left the riches of heaven to come down and who was not digging his heels in, who was glad to go, who before time eternal counseled with the Father within the Godhead and, and said, I will go. I know what they will do. They will reject your word and hate you. But I love them and we love them and I'm going to make a way to bring them back who was glad to come down here and enter into our world, and who was glad to die. What did he say on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. As we crucify the God who made us, as it were, with a smile in his soul, he died for us, down in the belly of the earth, went all the way to hell, suffered anything that anyone who looks on him by faith would have, drank all of the just wrath that would have been poured upon us for our sins, drank it all to the dregs so that we could not have to drink any of it, so that we could be free, so that we could enjoy the smile of God. And he was glad to do it. He's the anti-Jonah. And I think more than anything else, as we see God's heart of compassion for people and his love for people and for the city, we see in, the mar in this march of salvation history, we look to Christ and we see through this antichrist, as it were, Jonah, we see Christ displayed for us in all of his beauty and all of his love and all of his compassion swallowed up for us so that we could be delivered and made whole. So God loves the city and we should too. And I hope with all of me that you and I will and that we will together. Let's pray. God, help us love the city like you love the city. Help us love people like you love people. Help us to give our lives away for others as you have given your life away. Nobody took it from you. You gave it away freely for us. I pray that we could preach that. Oh God, that we could preach that to those that are dying around us and that we could live that out, that we could go down get dirty in the dirt and the sin and the evil that is in the city with the message of the gospel. Because we are secure, we have everything we need. This city so, so needs the message of hope and forgiveness and new life that is found in Christ alone. And so I, I just make that my prayer, that we could be that people, that we could plant churches that would be full of those kinds of people and that you would make this city a place where you obviously reign where you are glorified um, and that you love. Thank you for loving it in Jesus' name. Amen.